Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this reading of your word. And we look to you, O Lord, uh, this morning that you would be pleased to instruct us and train us, uh, to change us, to mold us, shape us and Inform us, O Lord, in Christ's likeness after this word, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you'd be pleased to work in our hearts by way of your powerful Holy Spirit, Lord. And uh, we call on you in this way, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. It's commonplace in evangelical Christianity to hear the phrase relationship with Christ. We've all heard that phrase, and we've heard it usually couched this way, that what we need is a relationship with Christ. And uh, you've also heard me say, at least many of you have heard me say, that uh, there isn't a human being out there under this sun uh, who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, We all do. Uh, In the prologue, the famous prologue of of John's gospel, He writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made, and in Him is life. What is John teaching us? Well, by way of the Holy Spirit, John is teaching us that uh, creation... Uh, is, has been accomplished through the Word, that all of us have been created by uh, way of the Word. We're going to look at this on uh, Wednesday nights as we study uh, creation. Um, we've been created through the Word, and we also learn from this that life is given to us through the Word. And in verse 14 of John's Gospel, we're told that the Word became flesh and He has dwelt among us, making it very clear uh, that who John is talking about is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Now, by way of being created uh, by Christ, uh, we have a relationship uh, to uh, Christ as one of creature and creator. And furthermore, um, Hebrews 1.3 teaches us that, uh, that Christ also upholds the universe by the word of His power. So, not only have we been created by 
uh, the second person of the Trinity, through the second person of the Trinity, but our hearts are beating in our chest because He has chosen to continue uh, giving us life. Uh, that's a pretty close relationship. It's a relationship of creature to creator. We all have a relationship with Christ. The problem, of course, is that uh, with an increasing amount, our culture is not in a very good relationship with Christ. And that's what's being implied when people say what you need is a relationship with with Jesus. Of course, what's being applied, uh, implied is that what we need is a, a good and positive relationship with Christ. In our text this morning, we're going to find no less than three types of relationships with Jesus. And my approach this morning will be really simple. I want to spend some time explaining the text. That'll take most of our time this morning. And as we do so, I think these relationships will come, uh, they'll begin to appear to all of us. Hopefully that will be the case. And as they do in the proper time, I'd like to really apply those to uh, ourselves. So let's begin with an explanation. In, in verse 1 here, we have the setting, if you will. Uh, we read the words, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now here we have the setting of this text. And then between verses 2 and 3, and it's important to see this, it's like watching a movie where you see one scene and there are some characters in that scene. And then all at once you go to another scene. You go to another place. You go to another scene all together. And that's what's taking place in verse 3. In a flash, we're now with the chief priests and the elders. And verse 3 tells us that we're gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. Well, there's a whole other scene going on here. And Caiaphas, uh, he's a very calculated and tricky and ruthless and politically savvy type of character. Uh, we know that uh, Rome was very fond of appointing the high priest uh, uh, during this time. And Rome, of course, did this politically in order to leverage the Holy Land, to leverage the people, to control the people. And Caiaphas was appointed by Rome. And we also know that through the years 37 BC all the way to 67 AD, that Rome had gone through 28 high priests priests. Now, if you do some simple math, you learn that the average tenure of the high priest was under four years. Uh, so they were going through high priests left and right. Uh, the interesting thing about Caiaphas, and this is often pointed out, is that Caiaphas lasted 18 years. Now, how did he pull that off? By being ruthless and politically savvy. Uh, by thirsting and hungering for the power. Uh, connect that, couple that with political shrewdness, and uh, you have your answer. Now, back to our text in verse 4, we're told that back at Caiaphas' palace, these leading religious leaders are gathered and, quote, plotting together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth, that is by underhanded cunning, if you will, uh, by stealth, they're desirous to kill Jesus. Verse 5 tells us that they decide not to do anything during the Passover feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, what they were worried about was a riot. 
It's a little bit tough for us to see this because if you remember last year, some of us will remember that uh, right around Easter time, we jumped forward in Matthew's gospel and we observed what we call the, uh, the uh, Palm Sunday. We, we looked at Matthew 21 and we studied that passage. Uh, kind of jumping ahead, so that's not so fresh in our minds. But had we, uh, had we done that just a, a, a few weeks ago, we would see that really Palm, what we call Palm Sunday, Jesus coming down into uh, Jerusalem by way of the Mount of Olives, this only happened just a few days earlier. And the whole city was just in an uproar. Uh, you remember that Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives with a large crowd following behind him, and there's a uh, the word gets out in Jerusalem that Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives and a whole bunch of people come up out of the city and meet Jesus. Uh, they all want to see Jesus because they're hearing that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and everybody wants to see Jesus. And they, they, they're, they're coming down the Mount of Olives with this huge procession and now all these people come up uh, uh, the Mount of Olives to meet Jesus. Then they turn around and there's this big kingly procession where Jesus comes down into Jerusalem uh, on uh, this uh, donkey, if you will. And what the chief priests are worried about here is a riot. Uh, we can't do anything to uh, Jesus uh, now. We're going to have to wait uh, for the Passover feast. And that's, of course, what everybody's doing in Jerusalem. They've come into Jerusalem to observe uh, the Passover feast. Now, before we move on, I want to I point out a time frame here to you that I think it's really important that we see. Uh, in verse 2, Jesus says that he will be handed over in two days, right? The religious leaders are planning their evil for after the Passover, which lasted seven days, right? And we're still two days from the Passover. So they're plotting and scheming behind closed doors about killing Jesus no sooner than nine days. Jesus is making the announcement that it's going to be two days. What's Matthew showing us? This is really important. He's showing us who's in charge. That's what he's showing us. You know, these evil doers. And it's important. We see this from time to time. If we look at the scriptures, we'll see from time to time that God, God does this. He's fond of doing this, of showing us just who's in charge here. Here we got all these powerful, evil people plotting, conniving behind closed doors. We're going to get him. We're going to get him. And we're going to get him after the Passover feast. That'll be the good time. No, you're, no, you're not. You're going to get him, but you're only going to get him when he is willing to be gotten. And that's what Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. And when Jesus is before Pilate, you might, if you've read this story, you may recall that Jesus is quiet. They're hurling all of these uh, uh, charges of blasphemy against Jesus. If we would have been in Jesus' place, we would have been shaken in our boots. This is a capital crime blasphemy. This is a serious matter. What is Jesus doing? He's silent. Just like Isaiah said he would be, silent. As a sheep before its shears, he's silent. And I don't know if, if Pilate was so much, I think at some point he was kind of intrigued by Jesus' silence, but I think at some point he seems to get kind of impatient with Jesus and he says, you won't speak to me? 
Do you realize I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? How does Jesus respond to Pilate? Well, he gets an answer out of this one, doesn't he? Mr. Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. See, the Gospels, they're wanting us to see that this is God's plan, this is God's doing, and God is in complete control of this. And when we take that thought and we combine it with the fact that the greatest crime that has ever been committed under the sun is about to be committed, then we can find a lot of comfort as we think about all the lesser crimes, some of which are, are extremely, extraordinarily heinous. We can find comfort in that. Yeah, there's all kinds of evil all around us, plotting and conniving to do all kinds of things, but God is ultimately in control here, isn't He? He's ultimately in control. This thing is not running with the wheels off. Now, let's return back to Matthew because in verse 6, the scene changes again. You remember like the movie scene. We've seen the first scene with Jesus and his uh, disciples. Then we move to, uh, to this uh, evil connivory back at Caiaphas' palace. Now the scene changes again in verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... We learn from John's uh, account of this story, which is recorded in John chapter 12, that this occurred six days before the Passover. So we're moving back in time a few days, and we're moving to a different location. We're moving to Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. You, you, you Bethany, you just a short little uh, distance. You go down the Mount of Olives, and then you're in Jerusalem. They're back at Bethany, and we're told that uh, they're in the house of a, a man named Simon the leper, Jesus had apparently healed this man of his leprosy. Otherwise, it would have rendered Jesus and his disciples uh, unclean to be in his home. And verse 7 tells us that while they were at Simon the leper's home, that a woman came up to Jesus with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now, again, if we, if we borrow some information from John's account of the story, we learn that this woman is Mary, who is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. She pours this ointment on Jesus. And we're also told in John's gospel that the value of this ointment was 300 denarii. A denarii was approximately a day's wage for the average laborer. Um, I... I'll do some calculations here, but before I do them, I want you to know this is real approximate, um, very approximate. But I was on the Social Security website uh, earlier this week, and I, I poked around and found out that the average yearly salary in America was $44,888.16. Um, uh, we think of that as a lot of money in our area, but... Uh, the average salaries in our area are much lower than the rest of the country, but we also need to remind ourselves that the cost of living is a lot lower here too. But if, assuming that this is based on a five-day work week, and I'm assuming that, I don't know that, um, that would bring the average daily wage to $172.65. And if we multiply that times 300, we come up with $48,795. Let's play devil's advocate here, and let's say that the average wage was 100 bucks. If we take 100 times 300, it's really easy math. Take the 1 times 3, you got 3, add a couple of zeros 
to the 300 and what do you have? You have $30,000. Man, this is one real expensive bottle of perfume, isn't it? I don't, this is, this is really expensive stuff that she pours out. And it's in a very expensive flask. The bottle uh, is described for us, an alabaster flask. It's a very expensive bottle, which would be fitting for such a precious ointment as this. Now, how do the disciples react to what Mary has done? Verse 8 tells us that they were indignant. Um, that's a strong word, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't say they were irritated. It doesn't say they were annoyed. It says they were indignant. They say, why this waste? Verse 9, this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Jesus responds to him in verse 10, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Verse 11, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. I think at a glance we can look at verse 11 and we can think, well, Jesus... Sounds like Jesus might be being a slight bit insensitive to the poor here, but please don't let your mind go there. Uh, Jesus is hardly insensitive to the poor. What did Jesus come to do? He came to die in the place of poor sinners. He's not being insensitive to the poor. Uh, what's going on here, I think, is very wonderfully illustrated by a story that I uh, read in a, a commentary. It was written by R.C. Sproul. Uh, commenting on this verse, he, he talks about a story where he was invited to speak at a church in Cleveland that was ministering in the inner city. It was an inner city uh, Cleveland church. I'm not sure what church it was, but uh, when Dr. Sproul got there, uh, the senior pastor of the church told uh, R.C. Sproul that they had, in the 15 years that he had been pastor there, they had gone through quite a few uh, associate pastors. And um, R.C. asked them, asked this pastor, why do you think that is? And the pastor said, quote, young ministers would come out of seminary with zeal to do good works, but when they came to inner city Cleveland, they rarely lasted more than a couple of years because they were defeated by the poverty, the squalor, the crime, and the hopelessness, end of quote. Well, we can understand that, can't we? Now, this aroused R.C.'s curiosity so much that he asked a follow-up question. I think maybe a lot of us would have asked the same question. He looked at the pastor and he says, well, what's kept you here? How have you managed to stay here? And his answer, his answer is uh, classic. He answers, quote, because Jesus said you have the poor with you always. I didn't come here to eliminate poverty because I knew that wasn't going to happen. I came here to minister to people in the midst of it, end of quote. It's a pretty healthy perspective, isn't it? It's one we want to keep in mind. We'll always have a poverty issue until Jesus returns and consummates his kingdom. In the meantime, our goal is to minister in the midst of it. Now, there's a lot of other details that we could explain this morning. Let's stop there because uh, our time is going by. Let's identify some of the various relationships that we find here. You've probably already, honing in, on, uh, you've probably already honed in on a couple of them. Um, the first type of relationship we find here is the, is the type of relationship that, I, for lack of a better description, I just, I'll call it the do-away-with-them relationship. The do-away-with-them. Uh, that, that's the attitude of the, the religious leaders, isn't it? He's got to go. Uh, we're just going to do away with them. Uh, 
he's interfering with our agenda, our purposes. He's interfering with everything we got going on. And what we got going on is what we want going on. And he has to go. That's all there is to it. And I think that this is probably the most common relationship that we find in our, in our culture. It's easy to identify if you're active in sharing your faith. It's, 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 you can quickly identify. There are so many people out there that you simply cannot have a, a conversation about Jesus with. Have you ever encountered people like that? You're not going to have a conversation with them about Jesus. They ain't going to let you because they, it's, just, we're just going to, it's not because they don't know about Jesus. It's because they're doing away with him. I'll, have, I'll hear nothing about that. I'll hear nothing about that. You can't even have a conversation with him. The second type of relationship that we find here is, the, is uh, revealed by Judas Iscariot. He reveals another type of relationship, which I, I'll call the betray him type of relationship. Uh, I think, you know, Judas, um, he seems to be a bit disillusioned at this point in the gospel. Uh, perhaps he's disillusioned by the direction that Jesus seems to be taking uh, the disciples, I think we see that in the disciples. They're, at many points in this, they're quite confused by what Jesus is doing. I think Judas is disillusioned. Uh, we know that he was the chief instigator with uh, uh, the attitude that what Mary had done by pouring the ointment on Jesus was a waste. We know that Judas was the primary instigator of that comment because John in his gospel tells us that. Uh, John records Judas' words as, quote, Why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? But then John tells us in the very next verse that Judas said that. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he used to help himself to the kidney. I I'm going to guess here that Judas was well aware that there was this flask laying around that was worth about 30 grand. And uh, if we could sell this baby, I'll have 30 grand to get my fingers on. You know, I could skim quite a few bucks off the top of this. Judas is a follower with ulterior motives. He's not in it for love of Christ and love of others. He's personally benefiting from being around, isn't he? Skimming off the top. Um, as soon as things seem to be turning ugly, Judas, Judas betrays Jesus for what he really loves. Matthew tells us in verse 15 that Judas threw Jesus under the bus for 30 shekels of silver. And, and incidentally, on the side, that at the time, we know, was a fair market value for a slave. I guess an interesting point. Judas sells Jesus off and he does it really cheaply and I think when we look at our own lives whenever we have our own little betrayals going on in our hearts I think if we take an inventory of those betrayals I think we'll find that we sell them pretty cheaply too this is a frightening thing Judas was with Jesus for three years right there by his side and he undoubtedly performed miracles with all the other disciples. You know, in the next week when we look at this betrayal a little bit closer, we're going to see that, you know, Jesus comes right out and says, someone's going to betray me. And it's not like they all say, well, I think I know who it is, you know. I think I know exactly who it is. No, they don't have any idea who it is. 
What's this teach us? There are all kinds of people in the church that, and when I say the church, I say the church at large. There are all kinds of people in the church that are in the church for ulterior motives. They're in the church for other things. Perhaps love of being in charge. A lot of people come into the church and it's like being in charge. I've observed that many, many times. That tendency to want to be in charge, to have things your way, that's a sinful and spiritually immature uh, tendency that we have to resist. Some love prestige. They come into the church, love prestige. People come into the church, they hear the gospel, they take communion, participate in prayers and worship, gain all these benefits. But at the end of the day, their hearts are elsewhere. As a, as a preacher, I, I must occasionally ask myself, and I found myself doing this a lot Tuesday, long before I was going to make this application. I'll do this from time to time, but Tuesday I spent quite a bit of time asking myself this question. Would I be studying the scriptures if I didn't have a Bible study? on Wednesday night that I was responsible for? Would I be studying the scriptures if I didn't have a sermon to preach on Sunday morning? I offer this to you because uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a good idea for each of us to ask these questions of ourselves. We're all in different places. I'm, I'm in professional ministry. Uh, but all of us can, can modify that question and ask the same question of our hearts. Do we love Jesus? Is He the love of our lives? Um, ask yourself this question. You know, what, what are you in love with? Uh, one way to answer that question is just to simply look at how you spend your time. Uh, how, do you, how do you spend your time? Do you spend it serving Jesus, worshiping Jesus? Obviously, you've given up Sunday morning to come and worship Him. There are many in our culture that claim to love Jesus that aren't willing to do that. And every time I see that and I hear that, I cringe. I think to myself, well, um, boy, something's really wrong here. I'll let, I'll let you be the judge, but uh, um, um, you're not, if you're not giving up a Sunday morning to worship Jesus, it's because there's something else you'd rather do on Sunday morning. You really need to be asking yourself that question. We need to be honest with this. Much more could be said about this. Let's move on to the last type of relationship we see here. We see Mary exemplifies it for us. It's third type of relationship, which I've called the poor, poor their love upon him type relationship. These, these names, uh, I think they serve a point. I, don't, um, I wish they could be a little better, but uh, I think that's the point. You know, Mary, um, she, doesn't, she doesn't spare any expense, does she? William Hendrickson's words are really helpful here. I found them to be so helpful. He writes, com commenting on Mary, he, he, he writes, the, the true meaning of what happened here will never be grasped until it is realized that when Mary was pouring out her perfume, she was also pouring out her heart. Her heart was filled with genuous, genuine religious love, gratitude, and devotion. The vessel in which the perfume was stored generally had a, a rather long and narrow neck, this bottle could have been opened or even broken at the top in such a manner that the perfume would have trickled out. But that would not satisfy Mary. So she broke it in such a manner that the ointment came gushing out over Jesus. Really beautiful, isn't it? It's an amazing and incredible act of love. 
There's another interesting thing here that I must mention because I think it really opens this whole thing up for us and I think it fills us with hope. When we look at the biblical characters, when we look at Mary right now, I think it's, it's easier for us. We can almost become discouraged sometimes when we, look at, when we look at these things because not many of us can look in our history and look back and, and say that we, have, that we have ever performed such a great act of love and devotion as this. But um, uh, there's something here that I think really opens this up for us. If you'll look at verse 12 with me, notice Jesus comments on Mary there. What's he say? He says, in pouring out this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. You see that? Now, the ESV study Bible is the best study Bible that I've ever read. I've been attempting to read every note in the ESV study Bible, but I find its comments on this verse to be really unfortunate. It, they, they, we have to remember that study Bibles, those study notes are the notes of men. They're not inspired. And the unfortunate note that I'm making reference to reads this way, quote, in her act of devotion, Mary unknowingly prepares Jesus' body for being laid to rest in the tomb. End of quote. And my opposition to that comment is this. How do we know that Mary unknowingly did this? I don't think Mary unknowingly did this. I think Mary knew exactly what she was doing. And I think we've got good reason to think this. Um, Jesus comes right out and says, two days... After two days, the Passover is coming. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He's telling the, his disciples and followers when he's going to die, and he's telling them how he's going to die, and he's been making noise about this for some time, hasn't he? And furthermore, when Luke introduces us to Mary, how does he describe Mary? You know the story of Mary and Martha? The disciples all come to the house, and Martha's busy serving. She's busy serving, and, and what's Mary doing? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. I think that if we were first century uh, people who knew Mary and knew the disciples and followed and kept up with things, I think I could almost hear a conversation about Mary. Yeah, you know that Mary. I'll tell you what, you say what you want about Mary, but boy, she loves Jesus. I mean, there's no question. When he is around, I know where you can find her. In fact, you remember that time we were back at the house and Martha couldn't keep up with serving everybody and she got all hot and bothered with Mary because there Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Yeah. Boy, one thing you can say, man, that Mary, boy, she just hangs on and clings to every word that he speaks. That's who Mary is. And I've been promising you that this will open this up. This is how it opens up. Do you know that you can learn to love? Hollywood teaches us that we fall in love, we fall out of love, that love just happens. Our songs that we listen to tell us love just happens. You learn how to love. Psalm 116 starts with this passionate heart that loves God. Why does he love God? Because he has found God to be merciful to him. It's through what he has learned from an experience. And experiencing God through that horrible affliction, he has learned to love God. 
We learn to love God just like we learn to love one another. I love Tammy with all my heart. I have learned to do that. And I'll tell you, I'm a real unlovely person. My grandfather will uh, vouch for that, but Tammy won't. If you call Tammy aside, you'll hear no negative comments about me whatsoever as you will never hear a negative comment from me about her. We learn to love each other. Love is learned. Now let's apply that to our passage. What does it mean to sit at the feet of Jesus? It's an expression that means to learn from Him. How do we sit at the feet of Jesus? We're doing it right now providing that what I am teaching is biblical. And I, I ask all of you to be the judge of what I teach every Sunday. Be sure that it's biblical. I spend a lot of time and I work very hard to do my best to make sure that it is biblical. And I think that what I'm saying is biblical. And if what I'm saying is biblical, then you are sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, I have observed over the last, I don't know how many months, a glow in some of your eyes that wasn't present a year or two ago. There's this spark, there's this glow. I am so overjoyed by it as I see it. What is it about? It's about your personal affection for Jesus Christ. What is happening to you? You're coming and you're hearing the gospel opened up Sunday in and Sunday out. And in many cases, you're coming Wednesday night and you're, you're hearing the gospel opened up uh, Wednesday in and Wednesday out. And what's happening to you? You're learning to love Jesus. As we learn things about Him we never knew before, our hearts are fanned into admiration. And as they're fanned into admiration and we continue to sit under the Word of God, then our hearts are fanned into love. Now, we may not in our resume have any kind of event like Mary has here to claim. We have maybe never poured $30,000 worth of perfume upon Christ's body. But nevertheless, I would submit that in many cases here in this room, you love Jesus more today than you did a year ago. You see the hope there? That's the proper use of God's Word. That's the proper use of theology. It's so that we can learn more about God correctly. He's revealed Himself to us. As we learn more about God, what happens? As we receive it by faith, our, our hearts become more affectionate. And as our hearts become more affectionate, our love for Christ deepens. As our love for Christ deepens, what happens? We become more obedient to His Word. We become more God-like. We become more Christ-like. Because He has a hold of us. And we never please Him until He has a hold of us. But isn't this a beautiful thing? Isn't this a lovely thing? That is how this final type of relationship is produced. The type of relationship that pours its heart out upon Jesus. That's how it's produced. It's produced on the inside by Christ Himself working through the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives.
And it's accomplished as we sit at the feet of Jesus. Some are trying to do away with Jesus. They won't sit at the feet of Jesus. Some will sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. Some are pouring their hearts out to Jesus. But it's not quite that simple. In each one of us here this morning, there is a sliver of all types, all three types of these relationships in our thorny and rocky hearts. Every time we sin, we throw Jesus under the bus. Every time we turn our back on him, we, we do away with him. But the good news is, every time we sit at his feet, he continues to work in our hearts and our lives. Does that make sense? So wonderful, isn't it? I think this is a good place to stop. What do you think? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we have trouble containing the tears as we think about these precious things, Lord. We have trouble, Lord, expressing our gratitude in words. Oh, Lord, what are we supposed to say after we have looked deeply into your word as we have just got done doing and we see what you were doing in the midst of hearts that are often just rebellious against you and full of all kinds of things that, that just impede the work of the church and make a mess of things, Lord, but yet you're so patient and, so patient and kind with us. And you gather us together on a morning like this so that we can sit at your feet so that, Lord, you can reveal yourself to us more and more, that, Lord, our affections can be heightened and greatened, that repentance can be brought forward. And, Lord, as we, as we learn more about you, Lord, we, we just love you all the more. What do we say in response to this, O oh Lord, to this great grace that we've received? Oh, Father, we say thank you. We say that we love you because of the mercy that we've received. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?